Alleviating the suffering associated with adverse health conditions involves not only developing new medical treatments, it also requires fundamentally changing how people treat themselves, one another, and the planet. Welcome, everybody. I am Marta Arnaldi, Lamin Research Fellow at the Queen's College, University of Oxford. Today, I am really delighted to welcome a distinguished guest, Karen Thorber, who is the author of the words with which I hope and this third episode of Translating COVID-19. Welcome, Karen. Oh, thank you for having me. Karen Thorberg is Herring Tuchman Living Professor in Literature and Professor of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University. Karen is author of multiple publications, including more than 70 articles and book chapters and three monographs, which have shaped and transformed themes such as comparative literature, world literature, global literature, environmental humanities, medical humanities, diaspora and translation. Karen's latest book, entitled Global Healing, Literature, Advocacy, Care, was published by Brill in March 2020. Global Healing, which we will discuss today, engages with literature and other writings from six continents, more than 50 countries, and more than two dozen languages, from Afrikaans to Yiddish. I feel immensely privileged to be able to reflect together with such a perceptive author as Karen around issues of contagion, global policy and care at these challenging times. Karen, I would like to start by quoting the words of Vaichi Dimok, professor of English at Yale. Professor Dimok has noted that global healing offers a new geography, a new methodology and a new archive connecting the Americas to Asia and Africa and through that expanded sphere of analysis, speaking to the world's health crisis with a new urgency and authority. Could you tell us what you understand by global healing and how this notion could help us alleviate or treat coronavirus disease, both in medical settings and in society more generally? Uh, thank you, Marta, so much for having me on today. Uh, global healing refers broadly to shattering stigmas surrounding diseases and other serious health conditions. It refers to humanizing healthcare by fully implementing person-focused care. It also refers to prioritizing care partnerships. The current pandemic, notwithstanding, improvements in human health have been monumental over the past century, and there's much to celebrate. But inequality and other injustices continue to contribute significantly to large-scale health problems. Alleviating the suffering associated with adverse health conditions involves not only developing new medical treatments, new medical procedures, it also involves instituting new forms of interpersonal interactions uh, between, of course, patients and physicians, but much more than that, it requires fundamentally changing how people treat themselves, how they treat one another, and how we treat the planet. So this is really everything from how we interact with our loved ones and strangers alike, within families, healthcare settings, and well beyond, to the types of leaders and policies we support, and for whom and what we advocate. 
And I think literature, uh, at least a lot of literature over the last decades, reveals that no matter how sophisticated our medical technology and treatments, uh, tremendous suffering will continue unless we shatter these disease stigmas, unless we humanize healthcare, and unless we prioritize uh, care, care partnerships. Now, regarding the second part of your question, which is how understandings of global healing can help us treat or alleviate the coronavirus, I think we need to think about this both in the medical setting and in, in society. And I'll go back to this three-pronged approach of stigmas, uh, healthcare, and, and partnerships. Societies regularly adopt prejudicial attitudes toward individuals with certain adverse health conditions. Societies promote unfounded assumptions, beliefs, biases about people who have particular conditions. And even more destructively, building on these prejudices, societies frequently subject individuals with adverse health conditions and also their families a lot of the time to discriminatory and, and often devastating uh, treatment, ranging from silencing and labeling to physically attacking, if not murdering. And of course, in global healing, I talk about how stigmas work vis-a-vis -vis leprosy or Hansen's disease, HIV AIDS, as well as Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. Regarding COVID-19, uh, we don't really know yet how stigmas will play out. But anecdotal evidence, or actually a lot more than anecdotal evidence so far, uh, suggests that it's not only people with the disease who've been stigmatized, but also families of people with the disease. And in many societies, or in some societies, health professionals uh, who are seen as carriers of the disease are perhaps not doing enough, even though they're devoting themselves 100% uh, to curing patients. I think also humanizing healthcare um, will go a long way to helping us with the, with the COVID crisis. And what I mean when I talk about humanizing healthcare, talk about person-focused care, is care in which patients are engaged with as individual people who have agency uh, care, where patients are listened to, their backgrounds and lived experiences are respected, their priorities are understood. But it's also care where everyone in the medical setting um, is, is able to have their needs met, have their voices heard. Um, and it's, it's really a, a group effort. It's really a joint effort. I think you know, what, you know, what we've seen with COVID-19 is a lot of this kind of person-focused care where physicians and nurses and technicians are going all out to help patients to help patients not only medically, but also emotionally and, and in some cases spiritually because of this imposed distancing. Uh, and, and finally, in terms of prioritizing uh, partnerships, and in the book, I emphasize the importance of strengthening partnerships of all kinds, but particularly those that will better enable the informal caregiving that actually forms most of the caregiving or much of the caregiving. Uh, that goes that goes on and I'm using family in a really broad sense it's one's biological family but also one's chosen family and the people uh, with whom one surrounds oneself and providing those individuals with resources and strength so that they can best uh, help the individual who's ill while not sacrificing uh, their, own, their own health. Thank you Karen. 
Yes, this is uh, extremely important. And uh, uh, my second question, in a sense, uh, reconnects with the, uh, this focus, uh, the collective, the global and the holistic uh, uh, focus of the pandemic. And in the introduction to a special literature of literature, uh, oh, sorry, special issues of literature and medicine, you write that medical practices and discourses are among the most widely circulated of all activities in the global economy. Yet, how actual medical care is provided is rooted strongly in local and regional cultural standards. So, with reference to the current pandemic, how world literature, and more specifically literature in translation, can help us better understand the ways in which discourses on health and disease are being transmitted across national languages and cultures? And what do you think is the most important lesson we can learn from these biocultural transfers? Uh, thank you, another great question. Uh, it's still too early, I think, to see how literature on COVID-19 specifically is translated across borders, although I hear there's some exciting translations coming out this summer, so I'll be looking for those. Uh, what I can say, thinking about literature narratives on other diseases, is that a transcultural perspective, a translingual perspective, not to mention a global perspective, really helps us better, better understand the broader context of individual, community, regional, and national experiences. And it's true that literature occurs most immediately within local systems, and that's why in the book I do pay a lot of attention to the specific national, cultural, literary, and medical context of the narratives I discuss. But one of the things that really became clear to me the more I read was the value of these narratives beyond their source cultures. So I think, you know, at the most basic level, adopting this global perspective, which of course is, would be impossible without translation, this enables us to see what aspects of illness experience might be primarily a function of local systems and what might be more unavoidable. I mean, certainly in the case of COVID-19, uh, we know that there are certain aspects of the disease that transcend nationality, for instance, individuals with pre-existing conditions, individuals who are more elderly are at increased risk, um, no matter where they are. But it's also um, very apparent that there are many things that do not transcend, there are many things about COVID-19 that do not transcend nationality. And there are many places uh, from which we can learn best practices, or there are many best practices uh, that, that, we can, that we can learn. And we know this because we see infection rates and death rates differ tremendously um, around, around the world. And, and some of these differences result from differences made in the present and the near past. So for instance, how soon to take the disease seriously, how strongly to enforce physical distancing, how about ultimate testing, and so on. But also one thing that I think has become even more apparent than it already was, is that vulnerability is impacted by actions and inactions of the less immediate past. So decisions concerning what constitutes a fair wage, availability of health insurance, availability of quality health care, uh, social support for families and individuals dealing with health crises and so on. And so I think moving forward, we have a tremendous amount to learn from one another, not only in more immediate actions to take when a pandemic strikes, but also how we can better support everyone to make everyone more, uh, or everyone less uh, susceptible to the pandem pandemics in, in the first place. Um, 
And I think, you know, taking on a global perspective also has a lot of other benefits. Um, it gives us, of course, different perspectives. It helps us reach decisions and become more comfortable with those decisions. And in the book, I talk a lot about decisions at the end of life, which is an issue that's been addressed in literature at least since the fifth century when Sophocles wrote about this in his play, The Women of Trachis. And in the book, I talk about narratives from all over the world that address this question of what happens when you have a loved one at the end of life who's begging uh, that you help take their life from them and the agonizing decisions um, and choices this, this places and burdens this places on family and loved ones. You know, that's an extreme example, but there are many, many other examples. We're just reading about experiences of others, reading how others have handled difficult situations uh, can help one make the best decisions for oneself and one's loved ones. Taking global perspective again, which is made possible by translation, helps us reduce exceptionalism, the feeling that we are or someone else is unique or special or different or particularly deserving or undeserving, uh, whether we're talking about you know, superiority or in, in suffering, right? And finally, taking global perspective helps us reduce hierarchies, it helps us reduce stereotypes, helps us realize or recognize that experiences and expectations regarding illness don't divide cleanly among religion or ethnicity or sexuality or gender or socioeconomic status or all the ways in which human beings divide themselves, that the illness experiences for individuals who have an adverse health conditions, as well as for those whom they love, um, are often very individual. And that's, that's really important for us to recognize just as it's super important for us to recognize that um, a lot of times, much of the time, um, individuals who face adverse health conditions face these conditions or their suffering is increased because of decisions that have been made by policymakers, by medical establishments, you know, often decades ago. So. Yeah, thank you so much, Karen, for such an insightful response, which uh, shows very clearly um, the potential of translation uh, to operate both uh, uh, in the private on a singular on the level of uh, uh, the individual individuality and more globally as a transnational force. Thank you so much. And my third question, in a sense, uh, expands on this uh, on this topic. So, in your beautiful introduction. Uh, of the book. You share the journey that led you to the complete completion of this volume. So could you tell us a bit more about this process and what role, again, if any, did translation play in retrieving examples specifically of non-Anglo-Euro-American uh, non literature and by extension of non-Anglo-Euro-American medical practice that can be helpful or revelatory for us in the present circumstances? Sure, sure. So the inspirations behind this book, I'll focus first on the inspirations and the translation. And the inspirations behind this book were many. Uh, they were both professional and, and personal. And in terms of uh, professional inspirations, I've long been interested in literature that engages with disease. And in fact, my junior thesis uh, back in college at Princeton uh, was on the French writer Albert Camus' La Passe, or The Plague, which has gotten a lot of attention in, in recent years. Uh, but of course, I wrote my thesis many years ago. So it's been, it's been an abiding interest. 
And as I was finishing up my previous book on environmental crises and East Asian literatures, I really wanted to go back um, or move forward, but go to an interest, um, go, you know, work on something in which I had a passion uh, for many, many years. And I thought I was going to do a book on uh, medical humanities and world literature because I was also deeply engaged in world literature studies at the time and publishing a lot of articles. And then I realized the two really for my project wouldn't work together. Uh, that if I were to focus on world literature and medical humanities, I wouldn't be able to look as, at quite as many texts as I could otherwise because a lot of the materials that I look at are not world literature, right? They haven't transcended boundaries there. Some of them are, you know, barely known within their own cultures. And so, it, you know, I ended up writing a lot of articles on world literature and then just focusing more um, in, the, in this book, uh, Global Healing, on medical narratives from a broad range of, a range of cultures. Um, and as I said, it's an abiding interest, but also it's part of my real commitment to use uh, the skills that we have as scholars of literature, as humanists, to address um, very real global crises and global concerns and challenges. And I did this with environment, did it with the medical book, and uh, now my, my new projects are, are taking that same approach. I think, you know, personally, uh, there were also some personal connections in that when I was in college, I had a very serious case of Lyme disease, which result in my being essentially bedridden for two years. Um, I couldn't read, I, I couldn't really stand um, very much, I, I couldn't think, I couldn't concentrate, I had very uh, poor uh, short-term memory, and my prognosis was not good, uh, but you know, obviously <laughs> I struggled back and you know, graduated from college and then went on for my PhD, and I think one of the things that really made um, my process of healing and recovery so much uh, smoother than it might have been was not only that I had uh, some amazing physicians, but, I mean, they were amazing. They were amazing not only in their medical skills, but also in their empathy, in their ability to connect with myself and my family. And that wasn't lost on me then. And, you know, as I read more and more over the years, I realized that this is not, my, my experience was not a unique experience at all. And that this combination of, of real, you know, skills in the science of medicine on the one hand, but also in how you treat patients, uh, particularly for, you know, Lyme disease uh, back a couple decades ago, was a pretty new disease and people didn't know as much about it as they do now. And just the impact that an empathic physician and nurses and technicians could have made a huge impact on me. Um, regarding the role of, of translation, that's, that's a, um, translation is hugely important for the kind of work that I do. I mean, I can read many languages, but as is true of everyone, there are so many more that I can't read, and hundreds and hundreds and not thousands, right? Like, as with all of us. So, had I not had access to translations, I would have been severely limited in my research and writing. Uh, translation also makes possible the courses that I teach. I teach in comparative literature at Harvard, and so by definition, my courses uh, have to be accessible to all our students, which means that the materials have to be available in English translation, although I strongly encourage students who can read in the original to read in the original, uh, but, the, but the, the basic text for the course have to be available in translation, so I'm entirely dependent on translation. Um, 
I, I do think, though, that when we rely on translation or teaching, and particularly our research, we do our best uh, to connect with individuals who can read texts in their source cultures. I think this is vital, that particularly in our research, that we not give the impression that we're talking about the source text if we're not, that we talk about text as translation, which is hugely important work in and of itself. Um, so, I, so I'm you know, fully in support of, of efforts to do more of that. I think, um, I don't know what I was going to say. Yeah, so the insights that non-Anglo-Euro-American medical practice can provide are also vital. And certainly, I mean, I'll just give one example here, uh, in efforts to reduce disease stigma. And we've seen a lot of this just in relation to Alzheimer's disease, to dementia, on a smaller scale uh, in parts of Japan and parts of Taiwan, uh, creating communities uh, for, or adapting local communities to make them more accessible to individuals uh, with memory challenges. And it's translation that helps us learn about these initiatives and these efforts and helps us think about how we could use that in our own society as well. And these so-called dementia villages, as they're called in some parts of the world, I know there's some in Europe as well, you know, they do, they actually translate really well across cultures. They're not the same in every culture, uh, but the basic idea and the basic principles uh, are, quite, are quite similar. So I think there's a lot more uh, the, that, we can, that we can do there. Thank you, Karen, especially for sharing uh, your uh, uh, personal and professional experience uh, uh, so, so beautifully and so honestly as well. And uh, I really think that what you just told us shows uh, the need to uh, bridge a gap between uh, science and culture and uh, medicine and translation. And uh, uh, it also demonstrates uh, the, the value and the uh, ability of the humanities at large to address and engage with these global challenges. And uh, I was, uh, uh, well, while you were talking, I was thinking uh, about the, uh, more the second part of your uh, book on global healing, which is concerned with the distinction between cure understood as the removal of a disease and healing proper which as James Carroll put it, deals with the concept of wholeness and as such can belong as much to the infirm as to the healthy. So in one of the most insightful chapters of your book, you claim that finding a cure for disease and curing disease have in many instances become obsessions. And we know it very well at this time. So what kind of healing can help us cope with coronavirus disease at a time when a vaccine and the cure for it have yet to become available? And also, will this healing be truly global or will language and culture negotiate different sets of needs and responses? Yeah, so you know, we're right in the middle, as you said, of the COVID pandemic now. And so finding a cure for the disease or a vaccine for the disease are our top priorities, and I think, I think justifiably so. Um, but until a cure or a vaccine are found, um, and frankly, after they're discovered as well, I think more of our focus has to be on healing and attaining well-being. For one thing, we don't know whether COVID is going to turn into a chronic condition for some people. We have heard that individuals on ventilators 
are continuing to feel, or individuals who have been on ventilators are continue, continuing to feel the effects of COVID long after um, release from the hospital. So we don't know, first of all, whether COVID's going to be a, um, a chronic, become a chronic condition. Um, but even, even if it doesn't, even if it turns out to be an acute condition, um, we still have to focus on healing, social healing, social well-being. I think the inequalities and injustices in our society in the United States, but frankly, many societies globally, have become even more obvious and even more clear than they already were. And I think this is where a lot of the healing needs to take place. A lot of it will take place locally or regionally, you know, within nations. A lot of it needs to take place nationally. Um, but I think, I don't want to say even more, but a, a tremendous amount of the healing has to take place internationally and globally as well. I think we've seen that any attempt to think of pandemics, even epidemics in a purely national sense, just ends up harming more individuals uh, down, down the road. And so, you know, the healing I talk about in global healing is a bit different than I think the healing that we uh, most need now in the, in the wake of the pandemic. Um, certainly, if I were writing global healing now, I'd put an extra chapter or two on that. I think the healing that we need now, and it's frankly healing that we've needed for a long time, um, it's, it's on the social level. It's again, addressing these inequalities, these injustices, the types of practices we have that make so many individuals so vulnerable, uh, vulnerable medically, but also vulnerable economically. So vulnerable economically uh, also, of course, can make you know, the two are not the same, is what I'm trying to say. Um, so we need as societies to do a much better job of addressing these injustices. And so I'm thinking of healing, you know, I talked about COVID-19 in an even broader way than I talk about it in much of the, much of the world. Thank you, Karen, for touching on these uh, such delicate themes and uh, urgent and important themes such as vulnerability and uh, social injustice and in, in, indeed i would like like to conclude this conversation with the final question that in a sense uh, um, challenges a bit uh, like uh, the so-called privileges of literature of uh, or the of this evidence of disparity which we can really feel right now because you know, uh, we are, we have the privilege to be able to talk about these things, but obviously there are people uh, who have not this privilege. So in the final pages of Global Healing, uh, you make two very important and provocative observations. So on the one hand, you note that even though we have made remarkable strides in conquering diseases, global literature reveals the tremendous work that remains with advocacy, care, and ultimately global healing among our greatest challenges. On the other hand, however, you're also aware of the need to remember that, and I quote again, conditions for countless numbers of the world's peoples are far worse than what we encounter in our readings, even, if, even as these readings provide us with some of the most penetrating insights into the lived experiences of illness. 
So to what extent do you think that we should or are allowed to integrate literature and the humanities into medical policy since they will provide, at least in most cases, a tool to understand and alleviate diseases rather than a solution to eradicate them? And could literature, especially literature in translation, help us shape, improve, and possibly implement health intervention in humanitarian settings? No, this is another vitally important question. I think literature has been one of the loudest and most persistent voices in revealing the urgency as well as the possibilities of transforming treatment and the treatment in its broadest sense. Transforming treatment and creating what I talk about in the book is communities of care. Uh, works of literature have highlighted just how much of the suffering that accompanies certain health conditions is caused directly and indirectly by social responses uh, to these conditions and the social structures from which uh, these responses emanate. Even more important, I think works of literature vividly depict the intensity of this suffering and underscore the need for healing care. Uh, literature frequently focuses on individual anguish or the anguish of families among broader economic and social dynamics. And I think this uniquely positions literature to reveal the deeply penetrating damage caused by current, uh, current practices, as well as uh, the need uh, for significant transformation in how societies prepare for and how we respond to crises and health. And literature's exposure of gratuitous suffering people inflict on one another um, and particularly those already dealing with the physical processes of adverse health conditions. I think this gives literature the potential to motivate private citizens, health professionals, and policy makers alike, not only to demand change, but also to work more effectively and persistently to implement practices conducive to healing and well-being. And I think two follow-up points to that, first of all, Literature is not completely innocent here. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, in my, in my book, I focus on works of literature that by and large are among these very persistent voices in revealing the urgency of changing care. But across the centuries, literature has not always played that role. Uh, literature, and I talk about this in the book a bit, literature has also reinforced stigmas, reinforced uh, inequalities, reinforce prejudices. So I want to make it clear that not all literature does what I just said some literature can do. Uh, and secondly, formal, as we all know, formal changes in matters of health and well-being often occur at the level of policy with policymakers, legislators, bureaucrats, lobbyists, uh, hospital executives, pharmaceutical executives uh, exerting significant power. And so I think Personally, it's less a matter of these individuals who hold the most power actually reading literature themselves, although I know many do. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, it's much more, or it's much more important um, to think about society, broader society as a whole, as reading these narratives, talking about these narratives, thinking about these narratives, and these narratives as impacting how people um, think about what is important what they should advocate for, whom they should elect to which office. 
And so it's a more indirect approach, although sometimes, of course, it's, it's quite direct. And I want to uh, kind of close here with a quotation from the historian Sarah Lewis that I, I quote in the book and I find really inspiring, where she says, the work of culture alters our perceptions. It connects us to the world of justice. How many movements have begun when a work of art and culture so shifted our perceptions of the world entirely that we had to conceive it anew? I think, again, this is quoting Sarah Lewis. She says, I think more times than we can possibly imagine. And so to answer your question more directly, I think we do need to integrate literature or at least humanities more broadly into medical training as well as policymaking. Uh, this helps us better understand the challenges that we face and it absolutely helps us shape, improve, and ultimately implement interventions uh, that will increase the health and well-being of our communities and of our society. No, thank you so much for this, Karen, and also for shifting the focus, in a sense, from the institutions to the individuals, uh, as well as uh, um, promoting, you know, proposing uh, uh, new ways uh, to, uh, as I said, bridge, bridge this gap between the sciences and humanities. And thank you so much, indeed, for taking us on this uh, journey. Uh, that has been rigorous and knowledgeable as much as it has been compassionate and humane. And as I have tried to express with my question throughout this conversation, uh, your book pays tribute to the workings of literature within our bodies and in the world around us. And it is also a testimony to the resilience of humankind through a thanks to the medium and language. So last but not least, thank you to our listeners for embarking on this global journey with us and with Karen uh, in the attempt to promote healing and enable well-being during and after the pandemic. So thank you very much. Thank you.